One Track Run Talk podcast. Bringing the forefront of science and elite sport to you. Hi there, guys, and welcome to the One Track Run Talk podcast. We're here with Matt Fox from Sweat Elite, and we're specifically talking to Matt about his time in East Africa, observing some of the best marathon runners in the world, obviously including the greatest of all time, Eliud Kipchoge. We're fascinated with how they train, how they rest, and how they build this community around running. So without further, let's hear from Matt and what he found, what he saw, and we'll see you on the other side. All good. Hey, can you hear hey. me now? I certainly can. How are you doing? Cool. Yeah, good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good. Really good. How's, how's the evening in Brisbane going? <laughs> or Gold Coast little, yeah, very close to Brisbane. Uh, just just under an hour drive south. Uh, yeah, all, all's good here. We're just uh, heading into winter. So tomorrow's the first day of winter here. Um, obviously, first day of summer for you guys over there. But uh, yeah, Probably our winters are very mild. It's actually, actually, actually it's pretty small, yeah. It may be slightly cooler, but um, no, all's good. We're uh, we're doing very well on the on the whole corona front. Like we have, you know, our cases have dropped significantly here, so we're we're quite um, a lot of the restrictions have eased in the last uh, couple of weeks. So we're sort of able to run in groups of up to ten now, and um, yeah, uh, I guess we're lucky in that regard because many countries uh, are, are a bit behind, uh, yeah. um, you know, those sort of restrictions easing. But you know, all in all, everything's good. Um, and thanks so much for having me on the on the call tonight. No, uh, thank you very much for yeah, thank you very much for joining in. It's um, yeah, it's an honour to have uh, someone who's travelled the world working with the best of the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a a very uh, adventurous last few years that I've had. And yeah, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of you reaching out to me a, a couple of weeks back and, and asking to collaborate and uh, yeah, happy to share any sort of insights or answer any questions um, that, that you or, or the group listening may have tonight. Um, yeah, shoot. Let's, let's get, let's start. If, if, if you're ready. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We've got a couple of people more joining in, but uh, I think the big thing yeah, is cool. like, whilst, whilst we've got a couple of people who are already here, how did you get into, or how did you, where did Sweat Elite come from? That's what yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, I was a um, I, I wouldn't call myself a professional runner, but I was sort of a semi-professional middle distance runner between 2008 and 2014. So I was sort of just off on the fringe of qualifying for, for for teams like the Olympics and Commonwealth Games. I didn't quite get there, but I was sort of not, not far off um, a few times during that period. And, and when I finished, uh, I decided to join a project uh, which was initially a mobile application, which is very similar to what Strava is now. Um, and at the time in 2014, Strava actually wasn't very, wasn't very big in running. It was quite big in cycling and it was sort of just getting started in running. So at the time, me and a few other friends that were, that were also, some of them were still running professionally and, or semi-professionally and some of them were just finished. We decided to try and create a social media application for running for people to share their, um, share their training. And uh, I guess uh, that project failed over about a sort of two-year period. We um, yeah, we, we, we made a few mistakes, I guess, with funding and we didn't really allocate that the right way. But I guess what I learned from that project was some of the elite athletes that we had um, logging on our social media application, which was called Sweat Mobile, I was sort of in charge of, of the marketing and looking at a lot of the data and analytics. And I was noticing that some of the athletes that were coming on that were very good. So 
for example, Zane Robinson and Jake Robinson were on there, the, the New Zealand um, uh, distance runners that, that are now the national record holders in the half marathon and marathon. Um, Nick Simmons uh, was on there, one of America's best middle distance runners. But I was looking at the, the sort of the data and seeing how many people were viewing their training every day and every week. And it was mind blowing how, how, you know, some of the, some of the statistics on those things. So I thought, well, how could I make something that isn't so difficult to manage in the sense of a social media application? How can I sort of share some of those insights on a more basic sort of blog format? Um, which is what Sweat Elite is now, which is basically just a, a, a website where we publish, where we research and publish training information and, and data from elite uh, runners, professional runners from all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how it all came about. I guess I really paraphrase there, but uh, yeah, today we have you know subscribers that, that subscribe to the site. Um, anyone can read, uh, it's two articles for free per month. And then after that, you subscribe to read to read it all. Uh, we we share quite a lot of you know snippets and excerpts on excerpts on social media so that people can sort of gain value from from not paying if that's what they're interested in. So yeah, so that's how it all sort of came about. It it really started with a with a with a failing mobile application, which is very similar to what Strava is now, just a training log that people can log their training on and follow others. And uh, yeah, here we are today, and it's 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 doing well. So and uh, yeah, as I said, I'm I'm happy to to share any of the insights that I've learned over the last few years with the with the research side of things. Love it. Well, I think that's why I wanted to reach out was that it's uh, it's very obvious that there's a a passion for wanting to know what really goes on behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. We we get bombarded with the Instagram. Are the highlight shots <laughs> with like them yeah, yeah. Doing, doing the last hundred meters or doing that one single two hundred or but we don't really see what goes on for the majority of the workload, um, yeah. which is obviously what this whole session to come about really is the behind the scenes of of uh, the the greatest marathon of all time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I, and I, I'm, as I said, I'd, lo I'd love to share some of the. Uh, the insights from our trip to, to to train with Eliud Kipchoge, which was which was quite some time ago now, it was in August two thousand and seventeen. Mm. It's one of the six trips that I've done to Kenya, but it's probably the most memorable. Um, and uh, yeah, so as I said, happy to answer any questions. And uh, I've gone before this call, I sort of went back and 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 looked at quite a few of the because this is a, this is sort of two and a half, almost three years ago now. Yeah. Look back at some of the videos that we shot and read some of the articles that my um, that my colleague Tate who. Who's the main sort of journalist writer at, at Sweat Elite? Who's 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 brilliant? He came with me and and did the training stint with with Elliot and the squad. So I read back some over some of those articles, and I'd actually like to maybe read out some snippets of those articles because I thought that yeah. would um would be a great way for people to sort of envision the the experience of ours rather than me just explaining it from from an experience so long ago. But um, but yeah yeah happy to happy to answer any questions. Absolutely. Well, I think of like first question I've got is like, how did it come about? How did you manage to head out train to with Elliot? Yeah, how did you manage to get out there and just yeah. go, hey, yeah, dude? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was actually a little bit like that. So I'll, I'll backtrack. Um, it was a, the end of 2016 that I sort of launched the website, and then I went to Kenya for the first time in April 2017, and that was that was a stint to train with David Radisha. So for those who don't know David Radisha, he's the the 800 meter world record holder still, and he's the two time Olympic champion. <laughs> and because I was a middle distance runner, I was initially quite keen and curious to learn more about his training. Um, and so that was the first trip. And on that trip in April, I met a few other people in, in, in Iten, which is the, the, probably the most popular place in Kenya to track, to train or, you know, where, where a lot of the professional athletes are. Now, Eliud isn't in, Eliud and his squad aren't in Iten. They're in a, they're in a town called Kaptagat, 
that's about 45 minutes to an hour drive away. So it's, it's quite close, maybe 40 or 50 miles. But anyway, on that trip in April, I met a few people that were connected with Elliot's group. And so when I learned in May that Elliot was going to try and break the world record at Berlin Marathon in September 2017, when he announced that, I quickly contacted Tate, my colleague, and said, you know, we've really got to try and cover the training leading into that world record attempt. Like that would be absolutely, absolutely ideal for us to do. So so I, I contacted a, um, a person in Kenya uh, who, who was connected with a group and I said, look, how do you think I should go about or we should go about getting over there for this um, for this block of training before Berlin Marathon? And he said, you know what, like chances are they they won't mind if you just turn up and train with them. The issue is they're in the they're in the middle of nowhere. There's not many there's not many places, there's not many places to stay so close by. And you know, unless you have a motorbike, you're not going to be able to keep up in sessions because they're often training you know in terrain and on routes that are so hilly and so uneven that like even on a even on a regular bike you probably will have a bit of a hard time keeping up so so basically the message from the contact that we had was like anyone can really go and do it uh, which I, I believe has changed these days with security because he's such a pilot <laughs> but at that yeah. point in time this was sort of just just as he was gaining his popularity you know at this point he wasn't the world record holder he hadn't run um, I think his personal best at that point was 203.05. So he's probably the second or third fastest ever at that Slow, point. Slow, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. And, uh, and so at that point, the message was kind of anyone can turn up, but it's it's really not like going to a city and just going down to the track. It, it, you, you're in remote Kenya. It's hard, like they don't, they don't have addresses out there. You know, you, you have to, it's quite hard to find their complex. It's quite hard to find the, the locations that they train so it's a bit of a mission and i guess we just rolled the dice and and, and took the gamble and we just tried to figure it out and, and we did and um we stayed in a guest house uh, a couple of kilometers away from where we learned that their sort of compound is and uh we we just decided that we would go down to their compound and, and try and meet them and try and ask them when they're training we got we got very lucky that on the on the second day we were there um Elliot was was there and we asked the security guy can we speak to Elliot and he, he said yeah he, he's in and because quite often he doesn't stay in the compound he stays in Eldoret which is where his family lived it's about mm. half an hour away anyway Elliot invited us to a, a tempo um, a 30 kilometer tempo session so 18 mile tempo run the following day and we quickly re- and we said well you know where do you do it and he said well we do it on this route around our compound that's very hilly and it's it's quite muddy and so <laughs> And so we quickly tried to figure out how to get a motorbike. So, so um, <laughs> we ended up hiring a motorbike for, for the time that we were there. And, uh, and yeah, the rest sort of panned out pretty well. We joined in on, on most of the sessions with them for the following month. Uh, we actually ran with them on some of their easy runs, which uh, were, were quite hard for us. And I'm, I'm happy to go into the details of them in terms of pace and, and whatnot. We'd love to, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's how it came about. It, was, it was, wasn't really organised. It was more about... Um, turning up and just hoping for the best when we were there. And I think in our mind, we were like, well, even if that doesn't work, we can always go to Iten just down the road, you know, yeah. and, 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 and sort of get more content, you know, there. So there was sort of a backup plan to divert to Iten and, and do it, you know, maybe do some training with Wilson Kipsang or some of the other top marathoners in, in, um, in Iten just down the road. So, so yeah, that's how, that's how it all came about. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Did you yeah. have any kind of idea of, uh, obviously, I know you've been there plenty of times and you've probably seen yeah. uh, the, the training camp of some of the other professional athletes, but did you have an idea around what you might see and did then what you learn change 
what you thought before or were expectations met or were they different? Mm, yeah. Um, I think because it was my second trip there, you know, I think my expectations were to some extent met, but, um, and that was only because I'd already spent a month in, in Kenya, you know, sort of mm. five months earlier with, with Radish's group. And I'd already, I'd already observed and understood what the living, you know, standards were like and what most of the athletes, you know, what their living circumstances were like and so forth. Um, I think what I, what was most impressive or most interesting about Elliot's group in particular was that, and this is quite well known now because of the way that NN, NN running team, the management group, um, are, mm. are doing a lot of their social media. But I was quite impressed at the way that the team, like the group lived in their own compound that it was almost like they lived in a in a board like well, and they still do sorry in like a boarding house as a team and they all had their own rooms or they, they they do share rooms two to a room, but it was almost like a little it, it's like an athlete village that only their group is is there and now we didn't really know that before we went there we we kind of thought Elliot probably lives in you know his own place and there's people scattered around the town but it was more like a it almost felt like a a football team in environment yeah. where they were all on a training camp sort of thing. So, yeah, and that's yeah. quite different in Iten and other parts in Kenya where we didn't see any of that, you know, groups would get together and they would, they would train as, as, as groups as you would normally expect, but they didn't live as a team so much. Wow. And that was the difference. And, and for those that follow Elliot and NN running team now, they often post insights and, and I know their YouTube channels awesome these days and they, mm. they, you know, they, they do some videos from inside the compound now. But at that point, before we went there, that kind of wasn't so well known and understood. So, yeah, that was that was something that we learned. And I think that was such a valuable um, and, and I think that's such a powerful thing for him and his group in that they train so tightly as a group and they help each other so much. And it's not only at training that they're that they've sort of got that that vibe. It's also when they're just hanging out watching watching the football. Like they all love watching the the Premier, <laughs> I think it's the Premier League. It's it's some version of um of, of football in Europe. I think it is because uh yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah they, they're all, fan, I think. <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's right. Yeah. I was trying to think of the club that he's a fan of but it was I, it was, I couldn't remember. It's, um yeah that was uh I think that was something that we definitely learned and that, that I think is is a major, uh, I guess, reason why there is so many good athletes in that group is that they're just so supportive of each other 24-7. Like, like wow. you know, they, when they when they get up, they're all, before they do their morning run at 6.10 every morning, they're, they're in the, the living room having a tea at 5.45 and pumping each other up for the session. Like, that's, in my opinion, that's a compounding thing and it's so valuable and, um yeah, that didn't so much happen uh, with the other groups in Kenya. It was more about turning up to training. Yes, there's absolutely that training vibe and that, um, you know, uh, being held accountable by other training partners within the training session, but then they all sort of go home and do their own thing. Um, mm. So, yeah, that was the main thing. Uh, I think the thing that also, well, I don't know if I'd use the word surprise, but, like, we knew that where he'd lived and trained was very remote, but it was more remote than we even imagined it to be. Like, like, <laughs> like we, we, hear, we, we hear about the town Captagat and then when you get there, it's not even really a town. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like a road with scattered shops and houses along about a three or four, maybe a, sorry, in, in miles, maybe a two-mile stretch. Um, wow. And it's almost like if you drove through it, you'd almost be like, did I miss it? Or was that, like, what <laughs> point, you know, was that Captagat or w- at what point was the centre? 
So it's very, very remote. Um, yes, it's only about a 30 to 40 minute drive from Eldoret, which is a significant size town, maybe 300 to 400,000 people uh, live in Eldoret. But where they live is is super remote, very quiet, and there's just very, very few or, you know, no distractions out there. So, and that's something that he, you know, often um, points out in interviews or in, in in posts that is a is a valuable thing for him as well, that he just has no distractions where he is out there training. So, so yeah, I think that's one thing that not, not didn't necessarily surprise us, but we just thought, wow, like this, yeah, this place is... Um, is, is definitely an ideal training environment if you if you if you want absolutely no distractions and you just want to focus in on the training. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's that's the big thing that the the elites try and do is remove all possible distractions as much, as best they can. Um, and when you tend to find that they get involved in the distraction side of things, like their sponsors then drag them left, right, and centre too close to competition times, and then suddenly things start to waver. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think, you know, I think across the board, like some athletes that we've met and that we've researched and posted about, perhaps from Europe or the US, you know, personality-wise, like some are a little bit different and they actually like to have something else to do outside of running and that might work mm. for them. But I, I feel like the, Af- the Africans, and this is not necessarily only the Kenyans, but also the Ethiopians, because we, we spent some time in Ethiopia as well, they tend to really put place a lot of importance on on their lifestyle being being non like not distracted and and it's kind of a well-known fact sorry just off the topic of um Eliu Kipchoge just for a minute but Kenanisa Bikile it's sort of arch rival who's also one of the best um distance runners of all time and still the world record holder for the five and 10k um it's kind of a well-known fact in Ethiopia amongst the running community that he you know had a bit of an average period between 2015 to 2000 and sort of last year when he sort of came back and ran uh, such a quick time at berlin where he was very distracted in the capital city um doing business and hmm. and you know with a lot of the money that he made um in his period on the track he bought a whole lot of businesses and invested in a whole lot of businesses and it's kind of what you know like we we, we went to Addis Ababa and spent some time there and, and met his coach and his coach even said the same thing he said yeah, he's just very busy with work and often doesn't even have time to do everything on the training plan anymore. And I think that's changed now. Um, now yeah, that we're yeah. trying to get back into into you know perhaps trying to win the Olympics um, next year, or I'm not 100 percent sure what his focus is right now. But yeah, it, that that definitely played a part in his um, in his few years there, Kennedy Sabikili, where he where he lacked the results or sort of went a little bit backwards because. Um, he was very busy doing those sort of things. So I think the Africans really try and create their lifestyle where they're just not distracted. I think that's where they find their best results. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, just to get into the training side of things then, because uh, on, on your website, you've got an article, the three keys to any of Kichoge's training, which seems, sounds like an absolute dream read. <laughs> um, yeah. You go into some of the points around simplicity, cohesiveness, and the idea of consistency. Could you give us a couple of like, expanding points around that and maybe even give us some example sessions of what someone might do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we actually briefly discussed this um, this article before the recording and uh, mm. I thought it was a good idea, although I didn't obviously tell you this before the recording, I thought it would be a good idea for me to actually read bits of this article because when I thought, oh, I might want to talk about this, I, when I read back through the article, I thought it's, it's so well written by Tate, my colleague, that I, I think I should maybe read bits of it out. So, so yeah, right. the, the article is about the three keys to Kipchoge's training and, and the first one is simplicity. I'll, I'll read what Tate wrote. It's only two paragraphs. So Elliot has spoken at great length about the benefits of the simplicity of his life in the training camp in Kaptegat. There is so little distraction out in the village. Life revolves around running and when the group isn't out 
for their daily runs. They are spending time doing chores around the house or relaxing together. The diet they eat is simple and repetitive. Their routine rarely changes. The workouts that the group do are all very similar each week and there's nothing fancy about them, just a lot of hard running. And a lot of the easy running in between, the group go out for an, the group go out on easy aerobic runs through the forest many times per week. The simplicity of their life out there eliminates inefficiency of energy being wasted on sources of stress such as travel, promotional commitments for sponsors or de dealing with media. The monistic lifestyle of Kipchoge and his counterparts facilitates the iron focus for which Elliot is so renowned. So sort of going back to the comment that you made that like you can easily get, as an elite athlete, you can sort of get pulled into that circumstance where your sponsors just constantly want you to be doing things. I think Elliot, you know, he kind of gets to avoid that for the most part being out there where he is and he just tries mm. to keep things really simple. Yeah, um, cohesiveness, uh, just one paragraph on this. Elliot and his training partners live most of the year in the training camp outside of Eldoret, living apart from family and other friends for much of the time. This means that they rely on each other for support. They push each other in training and they spend the time between training recovering together. The environment that this fosters is an extremely positive one. There is a comfortable camaraderie between the athletes and they so clearly enjoy their own company. This means that the sessions are often kept very fun and lighthearted, even when the prescribed workout is far from enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> having, having such a training environment evidently is more motivating for the group and helps to prevent burnout, taking away stress, and meaning that training becomes more gratifying for the whole group. And we, yeah, I mean, we absolutely we you know witness that every day i mean just the the way that they came together and 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 helped each other out in training sessions as i said not only in the training sessions but even before um i think it's just such a powerful thing and it's often overlooked in in people's progression and you know mm -hmm. I, I i coach some people now and, and and quite often they'll come to me and and say uh you know this is the training that i've been doing lately and i'll ask them the question of you know have you have you joined in with any training groups at all, even if it's just once a week for a training session. And, and it's, it's always been quite, I guess, of a surprise to me how often people don't place any value on that. Mm. Um, and, you know, part of why I absolutely love um, the idea of collaborating with, with you there at um, One Track Club is that, you know, you, you facilitate that, you know, the, the whole group environment. And, and I've just really learned from, from not only, you know, training with Elliot and, um, it's, you know, for many of the athletes that we've trained with, that that's such a powerful thing to have, have people to train with. Um, yeah, but on to the third one, uh, consistency. Uh, yeah, it's quite a long paragraph, this one, so I'll just keep it, I'll just sort of paraphrase. But, yeah, the, the third key to Kipchoge's training is consistency. Now that he's diverted his full attention to the marathon and only has a couple per year, he has a very distinct cycle of training in the lead-up to each race. He trains steadily all year and knows what is expected of him. This is vital to the sustainability of his performance as the consistent stress on the body mitigates the likelihood of injury occurring due to the hasty build for a race for which he is unprepared. Um, yeah, I mean, the rest of it just explains that he essentially does the same thing, you know, over and over. He They might just mm. add just little bits and pieces um, that they may have learnt along the way or they may just I, – I do know that for the INEOS challenge he – experimented a little bit with slightly higher mileage, for example. Um, but for the most part, their training plan stays the same every single cycle. Um, it's a it's a sort of 14 to 16 week build. And in between those cycles after each marathon, they, they have a period of sort of, well, it really depends on when the next target race is, but they'll have a period where they take complete time off. That's normally two to three weeks, sometimes even up to four. And then um, they'll have a, a period of four to six weeks where they'll be 
uh, mostly in the gym and doing a lot of just easy running and just general strength work. And then they'll start that cycle again. And it's, yeah, the consistency is, is definitely a huge factor. I think any, you know, any runner that's been around a while and coach that's been, um, that's relatively experienced knows that that's probably the most powerful, um, you know, thing in not only running, but in, you know, in most sports, just, just being consistent with it and trying to avoid having any major time periods of time sideline with injury, for example. Mm. But yeah, they were absolutely the three things that we just sort of determined to be the keys to his training. There's, um, Simplicity, cohesiveness, and, and consistency. Yeah, incredible. So now the team's kind of up in the early mornings. They're uh, they're having their sweet tea and getting themselves yeah. ready. What would, what would be a, what would be a typical session they would head out for? Yeah, sure. So um, we wrote a, we wrote a few articles about this. So for anyone that wants to find out in more detail, you can find on the site. But it, like every week's essentially the same, and this is in the training block, the fourteen to sixteen week training block that I mentioned leading into the marathon. Um, they do train uh, – they actually – this is one actually thing they've changed recently, and they used to train seven days a week, but they've, they've now cut that back to having one complete day off. But Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday are the three key quality sessions that they do. And to keep it easy um, to remember, I guess, on the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, it's the same every time. It's, it's two easy runs. It's typically um, 60 to 70 minutes in the morning and, and 40 to 45 minutes in the afternoon, and they're normally just quite easy pace for them. Um, but on the Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday is where the sort of the hard, um, more quality training um, takes place. On Tuesday, they'll do uh, fartlek. So they'll do um, – oh no, I'm sorry, I'm mixing this uh, Saturday and Tuesday. On, on <laughs> Tuesday, they'll do track. And the track sessions are normally um, – they're pretty much always sessions that start at around their goal marathon pace um, and finish – uh, slightly faster, so close to their half marathon pace or even sometimes 10K or 5K pace. So some example sessions are, um, I guess one of the staples that they do is 15 times 1K. They'll normally start at their goal marathon pace and finish it around their goal half marathon pace if they feel up to in increasing the pace. Mm. And between the repetitions, they'll have uh, one to one and a half minutes recovery. It's normally just jog 200 metres. Um, another session that they'll do pretty regularly is five sets of 2K, 1K. So 2K, 1K, 2K, 1K, five times through. And the 2K is done at their uh, their goal marathon pace and the 1K is done at their goal half marathon pace. Now, we actually never heard them say the phrase, this is done at their goal marathon pace or goal half marathon mm -hmm. pace. This is just what we figured out. Like when we, when we took notice of their times in the sessions and we converted them to the pace that they were running in the races, it was more or less around, around those sort of goal paces. Um, sometimes they'll drop in a session on the track on Tuesdays. It's a little bit quicker. And some examples of them, um, one that we saw was 10 times 800 and 10 times 400. Um, and that's when they'd be sort of starting at closer to their half marathon pace and finishing it closer to even sort of 5K, 10K pace. So some of the last repetitions on the 10 by 400 um, were at sort of close to 62, 63, which is, yeah, that's closer to 5K pace. Um, and in between those, it's, it's pretty much always the same in terms of the recovery. They always jog 200. Um, sometimes they'll walk 100 and then jog 100 to sort of make it a little bit longer recovery. But I think one actually interesting thing about this session that we noticed was that it very rarely was the recovery strictly timed. It was normally just you know, jog 200 or, or walk 100, jog 100 and get to the start of the next one and then, and then go again. And that would always be around, you know, a minute and a half. Mm. Um, but sometimes it would be slightly less and sometimes it would be slightly more. So, yeah, so that's Tuesday. Thursday was the long run and they would alternate this uh, being 40K one week and 30K the next week. So 40K, 30K, 40K, 30K. And the 40K runs were slightly 
slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and saying the paces of these is, is I'm happy to, sh- to share that information, but it's almost irrelevant because of the routes that they're running on. They are often so hilly that, you know, when we, I remember like, you know, some people commenting on this um, when, we would, when we would say the long runs were done at a, you know, a tempo, steady effort. And we'd say, you know, one of the, one of the 30K runs, the pace was 325 per kilometre, which I think is about 530 per mile. And people would comment going, that's way off his marathon pace. And true, it is, but they're logging about a, about a thousand metres elevation gain in that, in that 30K, which I'm, I'm not sure what that is in feet, but like it's, it's an extremely hilly route. Mm. So um, I guess the effort is at cl- you know, not too far off marathon pace in the 30K runs, in the shorter ones. And the 40k ones, they they're done at a little bit of an, a little bit easier pace, um, and that's that doesn't change. It's just 30k um, uh, very hard effort, and then the following week 40k at a little bit of an easier effort, um, and the paces on them would normally be yeah around sort of 520 to 530 per mile for the 30k, and then sort of between 530 and 545 per mile for the 40k, and yeah, you just really have to keep in mind that like they are doing some seriously hilly routes in those runs. So yeah. it's 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 completely different to 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 converting to running on the flat. And also keep in mind that Captagat is at uh, two thousand six hundred meters elevation. Um, that's seven and a half thousand feet, I think. So you know, obviously high altitude. Yes, they 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 were born there and have lived there for some time. So they don't feel the altitude so much, but even still, that that's definitely going to slow them down. And then on um, on Saturday is Fartlek, which is sessions to some extent a little bit similar to the stuff on Tuesday on the track, but it was just on um, off the track, so it was on routes or on the road. Um, those sessions would be uh, thirty by one minute on, one minute off, where they would run you know hard for one minute and then jog for one minute thirty times, um, uh, fifteen times two minutes on, one minute off. Uh, sorry, not 15, it was uh, 20 times, two minutes on, one minute off, 13 times, three minutes on, one minute off. And then as soon as they would do any repetitions above three minutes, the recovery would come out to to two minutes. So another mm-hmm. session that they did was uh, eight times six minutes with two minutes rest. And again, in terms of the pacing, it's really hard to report on that because they were just up and down on hills the whole time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some of the reps were done at, you know, 4.30 or 4.40 per mile and some of the reps were at 5.15, 5.20 per mile just because they were climbing or going down a hill. So, but, you know, the whole session was supposed to be at a sort of 8 to 8.5 out of 10 effort, I guess. Um, so, you know, they're running they're running hard in those sessions. So, so yeah, that's the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And as I said, the Monday, Wednesday, Friday is, is just two easy runs. And when we were there back then, they were running on Sunday. They were doing another 15 to 20K easy run. But from what I understand... Um, they they do not do that anymore. That's just from what I've read. Um, yeah, he's done a few posts on social media where um, he says that the Sunday is now their rest day. But it, yeah, it wasn't the case when we were there, but apparently it is now. So so yeah, that's um, that, that's their that's their training week, and it doesn't yeah it doesn't change. Wow. So where obviously I'm not sure you haven't got uh, you said you haven't heard directly, but if they're making up taking out that 20k or 15k on the Sunday. Are they adding that into other parts of the week? Do you think if they're increasing their mileage for like the Ineos or? Yeah, it's a good question, and I'm not 100 percent sure. I would assume so, 
Um, when we were there, quite often they wouldn't do a second run every day after the hard sessions in the afternoon, and they very well may do that now. They also may have increased some of the lengths and durations of their runs on Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the mornings. Um, mm. I did hear that, and I can't confirm that's true, but I did hear that they were doing upwards of 90 to 100 minutes on some of those runs in the, in the mornings on the, on the days that weren't the harder sessions, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But I can't confirm that to be true because I, I haven't seen it with my own eyes. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have wondered that as well. Have they sort of made up that mileage somewhere else? And you'd have to assume so given that it did. It was made public in an Ineos video that he's currently doing the highest mileage that he ever has in preparation for Ineos. So you'd have to assume that he's bumped up some of those runs, you know, yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, because that was definitely stated on one of the YouTube, on the videos that they posted on, um, on social media that he was, I think they said that he was doing around 215 to 220 kilometres a week in preparation for Ineos. I'm sorry, I don't know that conversion to miles. I think it's about 145. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's a little more than what we saw. We saw closer to 200K, maybe 190 to 200K when we were there. So, yeah, to answer the question, you have to you have to assume he's adding them in uh, into the other days. Yeah. Amazing. So uh, he's basically doing not far off a marathon every other week. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the long runs. Yeah, yeah, exactly, the, with the 40K runs, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, in a in a, in a 14-week build-up, he will do six or seven 40k runs leading into that into that marathon. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's definitely you know not a lot of coaches, I guess, that are coaching sort of um, recreational sub elite runners would advise that. But you know, we're talking about <laughs> the the greatest marathoner of all time, so yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely works for him. And yeah, I think one of the things that surprises me so much is that he's been able to keep up this sort of consistency, especially over the last three or four years, without – I haven't heard of a single injury. Hmm. Um, you know, he hasn't missed a race. He hasn't – he's turned up to every single race and and performed, you know, so well. I, I can't even recall any average race that he's had in the last three or four years. I think he's undefeated since, I think, 2016, I, um, I think. And um, that's one thing that's absolutely remarkable, that he's been able to, to do these – two to uh, normally three marathon cycles a year of 14 to 16 weeks of, of that sort of intensity and that sort of volume and not pick up an injury. Now, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if he's been completely injury-free, but, you know, like I haven't haven't heard of anything. And, and as I said before, he's turned up to every race and performed so well. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And um, hopefully he can keep it going. Absolutely. Who's, who sets yeah. the training for him? Is there, a, is there a local coach or is it like a team of people around him? Who sets the training for him? So the coach's name is Patrick Sang, and he himself was an Olympic. He definitely ran for the, at the Olympics for Kenya in the 3,000 steeplechase, and I think he may have medaled. Um, this is back in, I think, the late 80s or early 90s. Someone on this call may know these facts better than I do, but he, he was an elite runner himself. Um, and he is one of the sort of most well-known professional coaches in Kenya now. Um, yeah, he would probably be late 40s, uh, early 50s now, very wise coach, um, you know, checks in with all of the all of the athletes very regularly up at Kaptagat. Um, he lives in Eldoret down the road. And uh, I think the thing that he's just so good at that, you know, many coaches are good at this too, but I just we really witnessed this was 
was really trying to understand if an athlete is is overtraining or if they're maybe a little bit too tired to take on the session that day and should they pull back and, and do a slightly shorter training session or potentially just do an easy run or or, or we we didn't see him ever tell an athlete to completely take a day off but we did we did see him um, you know advise athletes to, to take an easy day and and I think that's one of the most you know important things uh, for a coach to be good at is to be able to understand that you know when athletes are doing this sort of volume and intensity that, that these guys are doing you know they're, they're bound to feel exhausted and, and borderline on, on overtraining at times and yeah. you know it's, I think it's just very valuable to have someone to be able to properly understand and 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 and, and pull you back from just blindly following the training plan regardless of how you feel. So, yeah, so so Patrick Sang's the coach and, and that's what we thought he was, you know, he was really good at. He's down at every track session. Um, he didn't come to the long runs, but they just started out the front of the house and finished out the front of the house um, uh, out of the, the sort of the, the compound that I was talking about before. Mm. And, uh, yeah, he's had so much success. He also coaches um, Jeffrey Campbell, who's now the world record holder in the half marathon and Kipchoge's, I guess number one training partner, and uh, yeah, uh, Kipchoge has been coached by him since he started running in his in his late teens. So yeah, he's he's they've obviously they obviously bond very well together. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the the biggest thing we I've, I've witnessed with meeting some of the uh, elite athletes that we come across in the UK and some other parts as well is the coach athlete bond is almost like obviously father, son, daughter, uh, father, kind of almost like that, that looking yeah. up figure, the unwavering faith sometimes, sometimes negatively impacted, but mostly in positive. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the bond is so strong that it's kind of like, yeah, <laughs> unwavering. Yeah. 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 No, I understand what you mean. Yeah. For sure. No, well, they, all, the, they all put a lot of, uh, they all put a lot of trust in, in Patrick and, you know, it's absolutely working for them out there. And yeah, I mean, you know, kind of links back to what I said just before that question was that, he hasn't been injured or at least he hasn't seemingly been injured for so long. So they're obviously doing something right out there. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think we actually had a couple of questions come in anyway, and it's on the next on my list anyway. So uh, strength work, you mentioned strength work in their, in their downtime. So just post marathon, they're getting back in the gym again, mostly working on that. Is that something that continues through the program? They're looking at their strength. Um, Has that changed over the years that you've missed? Yeah, so when we were there, they did not do strength training in the in the uh, the, the the specific period, so the fourteen to sixteen week block. I have been led, to, I have been told that now they do do some core work, but I I have not come across any any information or anyone telling me that they do any any actual lifting of weights in that period. They do in the preparation for the specific block. So they've raced the marathon. They've had a couple of weeks off, whether that's two to four. It's normally somewhere in between that. really depends on when the next race is. And then they'll have a block of four to six weeks, as I said before, where they'll do the strength work. And that is some – they are lifting some weights there. It's normally just light light stuff. It's a lot of circuit work. There's actually a really good video on um, on the – I think it's NN or it could be Ineos – uh, YouTube channel of them doing a session. So for those interested, I would I would I would search for that. I, I think it's Elliot Kipchoge a gym session. I think you'll find it. And it's a lot of circuit work. So it's a lot of um, light weights, you know, high repetition. Um, there's leg press. There's uh, um, I think there's some some dumbbell work in the upper body as well. But yeah, we 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 didn't see any any of that when we were there. And from what I understand, they they still don't do any of 
of the weight work during that that training block, but they they have added in some core work at the compound. I don't know the days they do that. I, I can only assume they're on the days um, that they're not doing the hard training sessions. But I think that's quite basic core core work. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's actually something that surprises a lot of people that they don't lift weights in the training block leading up to the marathon. Um, and interestingly enough, like I haven't actually come across a whole lot of really elite athletes that do. And 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 the answer that I get is actually quite quite interesting. When I ask, oh, how, you know, how come you don't incorporate weights into the training plan when you're building up for a, a marathon or a half marathon or a 10k? And and quite often the answer is that people have tried, but they they they're just too tired from the general training to be able to do that sort of that sort of work at the same time. And if they've tried to implement it before, they often are too fatigued and too sore from that, from that those gym sessions to then properly, you know, um, do the running training sessions. And and that's and I think one thing that someone could easily sort of misunderstand about this whole thing that I'm talking about is that like I do think that there can absolutely be a place for strength work in these um, training blocks. But these guys are doing, you know, such high mileage and such high intensity. They're pushing themselves to the absolute limit. And it's it's like not everyone is, is doing that. And I think that if you can, if you can figure out a way to um, in, incorporate the gym sessions and the strength work into your training and you're, and you're not pushing yourself to the extreme like these guys are doing and, you know, you're always sort of borderline overtraining and borderline, you know, picking up an injury, then you absolutely should. But most of the athletes, especially the guys in, in Kenya, that, yeah, they do not. And it, I think the main reason is that it's just it's too difficult to include in their training plan because they're just so generally tired from the quality yeah. sessions they're doing. Yeah. I think that's the, the the biggest argument in in any kind of uh, endurance sport is do we incorporate strength work or not? And mm. uh, we we've seen some papers that come out saying it can be of benefit, but it's another stressor to add in. So you've got yeah. these guys, like you just said, covering thousands of kilometers a month uh on yeah. their legs and you don't want to put another couple of sets of squats in there they're like i'm going to kill you for that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's exactly right and then there's always the question of where do you fit it in you know like yeah. if on tuesday you're supposed to do 15 times 1k and then on 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 thursday or friday you're supposed to back up and do a you know i'm just assuming this is an elite athlete preparing for a half marathon or a marathon in a few months mm. if you're trying to back up on thursday and friday and do a 20 mile you know, hard run or whether it's all hard or progressive or whatnot, like, you know, where do you fit that in? If you do it on on the Wednesday, you're still quite tired from the Tuesday's track session. Then if you do it on the Thursday, that's going to mean that you're tired leading into the tempo run. So, yeah, it, it takes a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of, I guess, trial and error and, and understanding yeah. where, you know, how you can fit those in. And, and even though, I'm sort of repeating myself a little bit here, but even though I did, I've never we haven't seen a lot of elite athletes doing a whole lot of weight work. I still do believe it can be incorporated and it can be beneficial, but you just have to, you just have to find that balance. Yeah, exactly. I think it's that's down to the, the, the technical coach meeting up with the coach that they trust that then has the technical knowledge around what the other coach is delivering. And it's a very team based environment where yeah, you've got right. the strength, strength coach bears in mind what they've got coming up and volumes and all that kind of stuff. So Exactly, and I think it can also be beneficial to people that may be trying to work on a on a on a, a technical issue of theirs. Like strength work can absolutely be beneficial for that. And most of these elite athletes, you know, part of the reason maybe why they're so good is that they don't have too many flaws in their technique. 
So they're not actually trying to improve upon anything more specifically in their technique. So, yeah, mm. I think that there's definitely a place for it, but it's just about the individual and the coach. For sure. So a couple of good, really good questions coming in about this stuff. Um, yeah. Based, obviously, the, the other stuff that you can add into a training program, um, did you see anything in regards to looking at their technique work or do, like, how do they monitor their, their pace? Obviously, you've got Garmin and Art and Polar and all those things just throwing watches at people now and, and getting people to um, monitor and track and etc. How are these guys yeah. actually monitoring their speeds? Because I'm sure it's changed over the years. Yeah, so this is some. This is actually something that I probably should have brought up in your first question. It's what surprised us. Now, there's actually very uh, there's much less data tracking in Kenya than than in Australia or UK or US. So, and what I mean by that is like a lot of the athletes actually don't really take too much notice of their paces or their splits in training. Of course, they have a vague idea, and most of them have a watch, and some of them have GPS watches, but a lot of them a lot of them actually don't and a lot of them just turn up and, and make sure they get the effort in and yeah it's, it's 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 interesting some you know might say well is that a good thing or is it a is it a bad thing like could they improve more if they if they understood more of their data and their and their pacing and training and i don't know but maybe but i mean many of these guys i i, I think one huge overlooked um benefit to maybe not becoming so obsessed and fixated on splits and paces in training is that you you sort of you're forced then to well, not forced but you, you in turn you sort of like you think more about how you're feeling in any session as opposed to your paces more mm. and then you, you, because you sort of don't have so many circle psychological limits on yourself because you you sort of don't know exactly what your pacing is in training i think quite often that can be a good thing in races because you're not thinking to yourself oh i'm going a little bit too fast for how i've been training and that can result in you pulling back and someone may you know can argue that and say yeah but <laughs> you probably want to pace yourself properly but like yeah there's definitely pros and cons and it depends which way you look at it but i've sort of gotten a little bit away from the question here but <laughs> that they you know, a lot of them don't a lot of them don't actually pace uh, take too much notice of their pace in training. They do it a lot more based on their effort. Um, whether or not that will change moving forward with um, you know technology improving and you know many of the Kenyan athletes earning more money to be able to afford these things, I don't know. Perhaps, but when we were there, we absolutely observed a lot of really really top athletes like you know 206 207 marathon runners that had a stopwatch that didn't have a gps watch and you know they weren't recording their training they were turning up getting the hard work in with kipchoge or another group and they weren't really worrying too much about their their pace and if you would ask them you know what was how did your session go um you know on tuesday what was your average pace in the 1ks they wouldn't be able to tell you like they'd be like oh it's probably about about 245 I, I i don't know it was about that but you know it was hard work and that's all that matters so there's definitely that that attitude over there and yeah I'm, it's, it's 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 hard to know if that's the right way or or not um but it was certainly one thing that uh that is worth pointing out and a big difference between, you know, the typical sort of training attitude and, and the tracking of data in the, in, in the, in the West, like in UK and Australia and, and Europe and so forth. Well, sure. Yeah. I think the, the, we've, we've got a lot of people in the call now who, who asked about watches and which ones to go for. And um, mm. we obviously, we use RP as part of our running 
delivery. So we ask people to yeah. feel how it how it goes. But that's the funny thing about heart rate, pace, and RPE. They're all so variable. One day you wake up and depending on how much sleep you get, which is another question that's come up, how much sleep you get can change a pacing's feeling. Like your marathon pace suddenly becomes really hard because you're fatigued. <laughs> so yeah. the RPE is the same, but you're running slower. Exactly. Exactly right. And if, uh, if if anyone wants to learn more about this exact topic, I, I definitely recommend Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure. I'm not sure if you've read it. Fletch, just but reading it now. <laughs> Sorry? No, I've actually got the audio book now. I'm listening to it now. Okay. Yeah, it's all about this and it's it's super interesting. And um, yeah, uh, I'm a big, big proponent and fan of, of RPE and running more to effort. And the, the runners that I coach at the moment, I, I'll, I'll always, well, for the most part, prescribe their training sessions based on RPE. And uh, and I, that's very similar to how they train over there. Quite often they will, they they won't you know rate their sessions based out of ten, but they will they will do it based on effort. And and I, I've overheard them say percent, like this is a session that's supposed to be done at ninety percent effort, um, you know, which which is essentially the same as nine um, out of ten RPE. Mm. Uh, but yeah, definitely a big fan of that. And um, and I think that uh, it should be incorporated in, in in everyone's training for sure. Love it. So, what was your RPE on the, on your tempo run with him versus his RPE? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do a tempo run with him. There is there is no way I'm keeping up. We were on a motorbike for the tempo run. Oh, but, uh, but I think to answer the question, we did join in a few easy runs, and uh, so the easy runs for him would have been an RPE of three, and probably an RPE for him and for us probably an eight or a nine. The easy runs that we join in with with the group on, we were typically uh, they were typically sixty to eighty minutes. So these are the runs on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, mm. and we would normally start very slow, uh, about five minutes per kilometer, which um, is about eight minutes per mile, and it would just sort of progressively pick up to running around, uh, converting again to probably just over six minutes per mile at the end, maybe six twenty, six fifteen, six twenty. In the last, um, which for him is is you know it's it's still very relaxed and comfortable, um, and yeah, same hilly routes, high altitude, and yeah, some of those runs were were pretty tough for us because you know a six minute mile up there, um, you know on a on a typical hilly route at altitude is probably the equivalent of a five twenty five thirty mile on the flat at sea level. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, quite a different effort. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's the only comparison I can do, I can do with RPE uh, for Elliot for us because you know there is no way we were, we were able to join in on the tempo runs. But yeah, we were lucky to have the motorbike and and follow him and um, yeah, awesome experience. Oh, for sure, I think that's the uh, we've got quite a few even potential new runners who are who are joining in on the call who are still kind of getting their head around pacing and 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 converting like. If you're taking a six-minute mile and dropping it down to five thirty, that's an extra half an hour off your marathon time, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a big difference between running up up there and, and running on the flat for sure. And we've uh, we found some data. We actually did a an altitude uh, camp last year. Yep. We went to Spain and there's a, an Olympic track that's in the in the mountains, and uh, mm -hmm. we were talking to the physiologist there. It's one percent physiological strain per hundred meters. So you can you can decrease your performance by one percent, one hundred meters at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that doesn't that sounds about right to me. Yeah, it's uh, it can it's it's a lot harder running up there. Yeah, was that down in um in the south? I'm forgetting the name of the place. The uh, yeah, it was in, in uh, Grenada. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, great spot. Um, yeah, yeah that, sounds, that sounds about right. Um, but of course, for, for them, you know, that conversion that I just did is is for someone that's not born at altitude and that, that's someone that's not adapted very well. So that's actually quite different for him. Um, you know, he, he definitely is still, uh, it's still a little bit harder, and, you know, it slows him down a little bit running at that altitude, but it's, it's definitely quite a bit different. If, you, if you're born up there and you've lived there for most of your life, you're, you're, it's a different story. Um, but, yeah, that conversion that I did was for someone that's like, like me or like us that would yeah, just go sure. and train for a few weeks, yeah. yeah. So when you noticed uh, them preparing for their sessions, did you see them doing any of the, kind of the stretching, the foam rolling, the uh, mobilizations, the warm-ups? What were they kind of preparing themselves with? Yeah, they did a bit of that. It was all that was all quite standard, actually. Um, no real surprises. Not really anything um, new there. Um, you know, a lot of dynamic stretching. A lot of you know, gen just general. Uh, we didn't see foam foam rolling. That was one of your questions. But um, yeah, just sort of general warm ups. They were typically ten to fifteen minutes jogging for the uh, for the sessions on Tuesday and Saturday, the track sessions in the fart lake, and then just a lot of very general um, dynamic um, stretching in the warm up. And typically the warm-ups were pretty short and sharp. It was just that 10, 15-minute jog, about five to 10 minutes of dynamic stretching, a couple of strides, and then they were off. It was, it was pretty much <laughs> that's, that simple. Um, I have seen videos lately of them doing um, quite a bit of mobility work, and I think I might have seen a foam roller, or at least they were doing some similar work in the compound when they weren't training, sort of, you know, during the day. Um, but, yeah, not, nothing really new or surprising there. It was all quite... Yeah forward yeah i think with uh, i've seen a couple of videos with them having like an on-site physio getting some massage done and stuff i think with yeah the, the foam roller kind of replaces if you don't have a, a hands-on therapist so if you have a yeah. hands-on therapist it's probably not as much needed right yeah yeah correct i mean yeah the foam roller is is essentially yeah a way to be able to 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 to, to stretch out or sorry like place pressure on those points that that are a masseuse would typically do for you but you can do it in your own time and it's obviously quite cheap and easy to do so so yeah they do have a have a masseuse there now that, that visits their compound pretty regularly i'm not, I'm not sure exactly how how frequently it'll be a few times a week i guess um but yeah it's it's set up now as a as a professional team and i mean you know they are the number one team in the world if you if you rate by you know marathon half marathon times so yeah, yeah like absolutely they, they need that they need they need that level of support all right, okay, so then the best marathon team in the world, what do they eat? What's their, uh, what's their nutritional yeah. plan looking like? Very basic, very basic. Um, th the most common uh, thing, I guess, they would eat, which they, they would normally eat this every single day, often twice a day, was ugali. Some of you may have heard of that. It's a Kenyan staple food. It's not. It's not necessarily a food that sort of athletes eat in Kenya. It's 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 staple across all you know the, the general cuisine of Kenya. And it's it's maize flour maize essentially cooked, and, and it it looks a bit like uh, so it's U G A L I if anyone, if anyone wants to Google it. <laughs> but it, it looks a bit like um, mashed potato, um, but it's a lot more. Uh, it, it's it's not doesn't doesn't have the flavour. It's actually quite bland, but it's just full of carbohydrates. Um, similar texture, I, sorry not texture, a similar like um, sort of carbohydrate density to just general white rice. Hmm. Um, so that's that's very common. They'll typically uh, it's it's very very plant based. Um, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruit, uh, a lot of a lot of bread, sort of toast, 
Um, they won't have too much meat. They'll typically have chicken or beef maybe two to three times a week. But for the most part, it's the, it's the, it's the basics, yeah. A lot of vegetables, a lot of fruit, um, and a lot of – Ogali would be, would be pretty much every day uh, for most of the Kenyan athletes. Um, and, yeah, again, back to that sort of simplicity and consistency, it's, it's, it doesn't change much and it's, it's not very – not much of a variety going on there, but uh, it's, it's what works for them. And, um, it, it, I mean, in, in general, the, the Kenyan cuisine is, is not uh, – there's not a lot of variety in the Kenyan mm. cuisine. I, I quite like it, but then after you've been there for a couple of weeks, <laughs> you start to realise you're sort of eating the same thing most days. Um, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that, that's how they that's that's what their diet consists of for the most part. A, a lot of uh, you, you said it yourself, and um, you may have read it somewhere, but they drink a lot of a lot of tea, <laughs> um, just general tea. From what I understand, I don't think it was anything special, um, and they load it up with sugar, um, just general brown sugar. And other than that, it's yeah, it's water. And I, I didn't hear of any other supplements that they were taking in terms of protein, but I I can't be sure of that. Um, nowadays, Morton plays a big role. Um, that's the sports supplement company. Mm. You know, they sponsor the whole group, so they use a lot of that in their training, which is just sort of an advanced electrolyte drink. Um, pretty similar to you know something like Powerade or Gatorade, but it's it's sort of slightly more advanced in the sense of some of the compounds are um, you're able to so that's able to sort of pack more carbohydrates into the into the same sized um, powder. But uh, yeah, very simple, very basic, and um, Heavily sort of plant plant based. Amazing. I think that's yeah. the like the the coolest thing about the body is it responds to stress. But we need to have that consistent stress for it to respond to. So mm. the, the blandness of the food, the the training consistency, and the the non fancy complexity really helps to play into the body adapting and and becoming more and more comfortable with the environment that's being placed into. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Love it. Um, cool, I think there was one more question. It was like, uh, would you recommend people go to Kenya? Would you actually recommend they go? And how, how could they get out there if they wanted to go? Yeah, I absolutely recommend it. Of course, at the moment, <laughs> everyone knows at the moment it's a bit tricky. But, um, you know, <laughs> when, this thing, when this thing finally, um, hopefully it's not too long, um, you know, is, is resolved and, and we're able to travel freely again, um, I absolutely recommend a trip to Kenya for anyone that's, you know, has a strong interest in running and especially in the, the elite running scene. Um, I think seeing how these athletes live and train is just eye-opening. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's an experience that, you know, you'll remember forever. I think one, one really, uh, you know, one thing that really has stuck with me is how basic their lives are. Like how they, they they really do get up, they train. Some 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 of the groups train three times a day, but you know in Elliot's case it's twice for the most part. But other than that, it's just ch chilling out and reading, and 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 they're they're really they're really happy just to to keep it really simple. And you know most of them don't have. You know, Elliot's an exception. You know he's obviously earned a lot of money in his career, but a lot of the other guys that are that are very elite, we're talking. You know, females that have run 225 to 230 and males that have run sort of 207 to 210. You know, many of these guys don't have sponsors. They don't have much money, but they're, 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 they're very happy. They turn up to train every single day and they, they just have such a simple life. And I think that that's, that's something that <laughs> I've been to Kenya six times now and that's probably the thing that I enjoy the most is that every True. time I go there, I just think like, 
you know, these guys live, they've just, <laughs> yeah, they just live such a simple life. They live such a stress. And I know it's not that simple living in a, in a, in a place like London or, yeah. or <laughs> North Sydney, it's completely different. But um, I think that just that perspective is really, is, is, is really interesting. And it's something that, that almost everyone that I know that's been to Kenya comments on. Um, and it's, it's a really good place to do a, a training camp. I mean, the altitude is, is ideal in a 10 it's 2000 sorry i know that it's 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 miles but is it is it meters or feet when it comes to altitude um, um i think either works i think we've all kind of split the country okay. in half people working in imperial <laughs> metric <laughs> okay um well i'll, I'll work in meters because the conversion yeah. for me is meters isn't great for me but um it ends about 2300 meters captigat um a little higher about 2600 captigat's where elliot's group is um so altitude is is ideal um, the terrain is 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 tough uh, in a sense of there's lots of dirt roads, quite uneven ground, but it's it's not too tough. I think it's it's ideal for for a training camp, and it's it's much safer and and sort of um, more welcoming than than I thought it would be. Mm. Um, you know, Nairobi has its crime issues, but you're far from Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, but you're mm. far from Nairobi in Iten. You know, you're you know uh, three about two hundred and fifty miles away. Very safe, very welcoming. The locals are always very friendly, and uh, yeah, it's it's also very cheap. I mean, you know, flying to get there can be can be pricey. Once you're there, yeah, there are plenty of guest houses in town for for twenty pounds, twenty five pounds per night or less that include you know a couple of meals, or they might even include all three meals. Um, you know, and the meals are very basic, but you know that's that's for the most part what you'll get there unless you go into one of the cities. And yeah, it's it's such an affordable place to, to 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 base yourself for a little while, whether that be a few weeks or a few months. But I absolutely recommend it, and I think that um, yeah, if anyone's sort of had a strong interest in running for some time and they're interested in the sort of the elite running scene and want to learn more about the lifestyle of the Kenyan runners, I'd absolutely recommend it, and I'm happy to give any advice if anyone has any more questions about it. Love it. Thank you very much. I just want to throw it out to the group now and just say if there's any questions you guys have got specifically, uh, either for Matt or just for his training in general around what he saw, uh, please feel free to enter it in. Um, we'll, for another five more minutes, we'll be able to hang on. We don't take too much of your evening up. Um, but yeah, please feel free to ask any questions, guys. Drop it into the box. Or if you actually want to jump onto audio and ask directly, you can as well. Yeah, no problem. That awkward suspense now until the first person goes for it. <laughs> Go on, Jane, I can see you typing. <laughs> so with the camper, are there many females in the in the camp themselves? So not necessarily in the in the house, because I know there's a lot of um as <laughs> as well. There's a um, the confines of Iliud's team is mostly males, but in regards in, to the Greater Camp, yeah, in Iliud's camp at Captagat, there it was um, it was only males. Um, in NN running team, there are there are females in in the team, absolutely, and I'm not sure if they have their own compound. I've never heard of it, but in the other training camps in Iten, well. Uh, I shouldn't even use the word camps because they were more training groups. Um, there were plenty of females joining in, in those um, training sessions, but they were quite different in a sense that they didn't have 
you know, the compound where they all live together. So, mm -hmm. I mean, to answer the question, yeah, plenty of females training in the groups over there, but in Elliot's group, there weren't any females tr training in, in their group or living at the compound. So, but if you go to Iten, like there's sort of an equal, yeah, male to female ratio when it comes to, when it comes to most of the training groups, there'll typically be a pretty similar amount of males and females. Yeah. Amazing. Do, do many of the female, I know there's, a, there's now a, a, quite a big link between East Africa and some of the American collegiate sports teams. So we're now getting some African runners who are now getting sponsored to go to America and run for uh, some of the colleges and getting education features. Is that, is that still quite a heavy yeah. link? Yeah, I believe that's been, that's sort of been going on for some time. And I, I mm. think it's, I think it still is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't follow the American collegiate system too closely, but you know, whenever I do, you know, check some of the race results, I, I do notice that there's you know some African names up the up the front quite regularly. So, yeah, there are there's a couple of groups based in Eldoret. Now, I I, I keep bringing up the town Eldoret. That's sort of like the largest town, um, the closest to both of um, the training locations I keep talking about in Iten and Captagat. Um, and in Eldoret, there's a couple of groups that do the scouting for the American collegiate system. I've only overheard this from others. And they kind of are contacted by the American colleges, from what I understand anyway, and they sort of go out and look for talent um, and people that have gotten good grades in high school um, may have performed reasonably well at running and that are able to um, potentially get through the exams required to get a scholarship to a college in the US because I think one of the most challenging parts is, is passing the exams because mm -hmm. you have to pass the, I don't remember the name of it, some, some on the call might, but um, yeah, there's, an, there's a couple of exams that you have to pass in order to sort of get a scholarship to US and I think that's, yeah. that's a challenge in, in Kenya because many of the people, the education obviously isn't, isn't, quite, as, um, isn't quite as good as, as the US or, or the UK or Australia. Uh, for sure, for sure. Uh, two, good, two good and probably last questions coming up. We've got um, Ted's asking, uh, what's the main thing you've taken from watching them train that you would apply to the average weekend warrior? Mm. Um, I think the two things that first come to mind is, and I've already touched on these things, but the first one is, it's this is, this is difficult to do for someone that's been um, you know had a GPS watch for some time and that's quite into the data but maybe trying to take a slight step back from being too focused in on pace splits I, I absolutely think it's it's good to be tracking that stuff and I do myself and, I, and I'm all for that but if in any way you can to try and learn to listen to how your body feels a little bit more so so I think more specifically maybe more specific advice is, if you typically do your easy runs at a set pace, I think that that's maybe a, that that's a mistake. I think that you should try and do your easy runs more at an effort. And you kind of touched on this before yourself, Fletch. Like, mm. I think that like getting worried about oh, last week, you know, five minutes, uh, sorry, um, eight minutes per uh, per mile, my heart rate was this. Why is my heart rate slightly higher today? Like, I think that 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 sort of worry and that sort of analysis is um for the most part um just it, it doesn't really help i mean in in some circumstances absolutely that might mean that you're getting sick and so forth but i think that like my point of this is if you can try and come away a little bit from measuring and analyzing and worrying about splits and paces and you can learn to listen to your body a little bit more about how you actually feel that's something that is 
is so prevalent and so well done by the African runners. And I think that that's something that I have applied to my own training and it's definitely helped me um, to the point where some runs now, I, I just don't wear a watch. You know, I know that I know that I have to do an hour run and I know that that's very roughly for me, um, uh, 13 and a half Ks, about eight, eight and a half miles. Um, and I know that there's a, there's two routes that I can take that are that long. So I just, I just do it and I don't worry about the pace. And, and that forces me in a way to, to listen to how I'm feeling because there's no way of me to, to know how fast I'm going. So I think that that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I've already touched on this as well, but trying to, trying to train with other people and, and trying to train with, with groups and, and understanding the value in, in, in that and being pushed by someone else and, and even having the, the, the camaraderie with other people as well before and after training, I think that that's definitely a factor that's overlooked and something that's that like the Kenyan athletes, they, they, they can't understand the idea of like doing all training on their own. Like to them, that would just be like, how would someone, how would, how would someone do that? Like that's, that's what they would be thinking. Like to them, it's just so important and so valuable to have their training partners around and to have people to train with. Um, most of the time anyway, it might not be every single run. And, uh, I've even heard on, you know, Elliot, Elliot's posted in the last couple of weeks. I, I don't remember if it was on Instagram or Facebook, but he said that he's really missing his training partners, sure. you know, because he's running. He's, he, they, they, they've been forced to train um, individually at the moment in the current, you know, um, social distancing measures over there. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's the second thing, if, if possible. And I understand that some people aren't in that position. They might live remotely or they might have to train at a certain time due to work that's a bit later or earlier than normal. So I, I understand it's easier said than done. but. I do think that if you can make the effort to try and run with other people and run with a group, I think that that's, that's definitely something that I kind of already knew that going into the, the stints of um, you know, training and research in Kenya, but that, that was something that I came out really understanding that that's, that's really important. Amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, we've just got uh, Lee who wants to jump in and ask a, a question on audio as well. Thanks, Fletch. Um, Matt, thanks so much for making the time. Really interesting um, conversation. Um, I've been training with Fletch for about five years now, and we talk about one thing that we talk about a lot is recovery. Um, and I'm a Whoop user, and Whoop is always telling me to get more sleep. Um, <laughs> when you were there, did, it, did you learn anything about how the team were using sleep in their training to make sure that they were, I guess, going into it as fresh as possible? Thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And uh, to be honest, we didn't really learn, I hate to say it a bit this point, we didn't really learn a lot about that. Um, we do know that they tend to go to sleep around 9, 30, 10 every night. Um, we do know that they wake up at 5, 30, 5, 40 for the 6, 10 start. You know, so doing the math, that's, uh, you know, very roughly 9, 30, uh, 8 to 9 hours sleep. But, you know, we didn't really learn much more about, you know, do they you know, use any sort of techniques to sleep you know whether that's meditation or so no unfortunately not like i wish i had more answers for you there but we didn't we didn't really find out any more information about that um but you know i think guess you know repeating myself to some extent like they they do really from what we learned make sure that they're in bed by 9 30 and sort of asleep by 10 so they do really place importance on that and getting enough sleep and being in bed very early so they can wake up at 5 30 refreshed but yeah unfortunately um, nothing more on that front, but uh, yeah. I suppose the big thing with sleep is that sometimes the more simple it is, the better. Um, you, you know, yeah, yeah. Sometimes too much stress I, on the idea of getting to sleep makes you not sleep in the first place. I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, if the more you worry and the more you plan it, it's almost like it backfires on you when it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, Tom's got a great question. I think this is a really good way of of of, uh, of ending it. But um, any lessons that you've implemented in your own life away from running, from seeing uh, Eliud, but just the, the running culture in, in East Africa? Have you taken any of those lessons out and just put them into your daily life? Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, the main one is is diet. Uh, <laughs> I eat mostly plant based now. Um, Importing ugali. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I don't have. I don't import ugali. I don't make ugali. But yeah, I actually switched to. And, and this is not. I'm not advocating vegetarian or, or, or vegan because I, I've done enough research to understand it's very individual, and some people respond well to, you know, plant based, and others respond well to, sort of, you know, a completely different, um, more you know, protein and meat based. But yes, I think that's the main thing. I experimented. Um, sort of extending because when I'm there, I'm meeting predominantly plant-based because that's that's what the the guest houses tend to you know serve you. And I experimented extending that when I got home for a couple of more months. And uh, this is two years ago now. And in in general, I just felt like I I <laughs> as simple as it sounds, I just felt better. Um, <laughs> I was sleeping a little better. I felt like my energy was slightly improved and and sort of a little bit more stable. I didn't tend to uh, feel so drowsy during um, periods of the day where I typically sort of would before. Normally I'd sort of have a bit of a maybe a lull in, in energy at around sort of two to four o'clock in the afternoon. Not every day, but sometimes I would and I don't really have that anymore. And it's hard to say if the diet is that or if it's, you know, a combination of other things. But that's one thing that I have. I probably eat meat maybe once every very roughly two to three weeks now, only when, like, I can't even remember the last time I've cooked meat myself. It's normally if, if I'm in a restaurant and a, and a, <laughs> a dish looks good, I might order it, so I'll have it very occasionally. But, um, yeah, so that is something that I've incorporated and it's something that I learned. But at the same time, I, I'm hesitant to, to, to advise that just yeah. because of when, when, I, when I went down that path, that route, I, I researched a lot more into into diet and, and, and performance and I, I quickly realized that there's there's not there's not the right there's not a wrong and right way. So um yeah so that's that's the main thing that I've I've learned. Otherwise um, um a small thing but just trying to keep sort of stress levels as low as possible because I think that's one thing that the Kenyans just and the and the African runners just do so well. Um, and uh, yeah, I've actually experimented with a couple of applications. One's HRV for um, training. It's a friend of mine that runs it, which is a, which is a an application that measures your your stress levels. Um, and yeah, that's I, I can't say that that uh, you know I think one of the main things in that space is that I've done a little bit more sort of uh, meditation and um, reduced the intensity of the easy runs to sort of reduce stress. But other than that, that's about it. But yeah, they're the two main things that I've learned and applied myself. Amazing. Well, thank you yeah. so much for your time, Matt. I really appreciate you jumping on. Very welcome. Uh, love love no, what you're doing. <laughs> no, I'm more than happy to help. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate you reaching out. And I, I really like what you're doing over there at, uh, at, at One Track Club. And, yeah, I think it's yeah. – uh, I, I still haven't joined in a session. Unfortunately, I had planned to, but I've got a bit of Achilles tendonitis going on at the moment. So I'm, uh, I'm for the most part, sidelined. But uh, I hope to join a session very soon. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great to have you in there. And I think uh, uh, Finn, one of our other runners, is works in documentaries. He might contact you about making one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Matt. Thank you very much. Guys, thank you very much for joining in. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, hopefully we learn something. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great night, guys. Cool. No worries. Thanks, guys.
All right, guys, thank you for listening in. We really appreciate your time as always. Please hit us up on social at one track underscore club. Download our app from the app stores and obviously go and follow Matt and what he's doing with Sweat Elite. They're doing some amazing work. Thank you so much again and we really appreciate you listening in. Mm-hmm.